Unloose the goose. We'll take no views. Your paradigm's run out of time and we've got no use. Unloose the goose. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Unloose the Goose podcast. Episode 51. Today we're going to be talking about civil disobedience. Martin Luther King once said, man has a responsibility to disobey unjust laws. And today we are going to talk about why civil disobedience is an important tool uh, when it comes to the pursuit of freedom. We're going to talk about strategies. We're going to talk about civil disobedience in a variety of different areas. Of course, we could talk about COVID mandates, disobeying those, mask mandates, all that good stuff, but definitely a, a broader scope than that. And we're going to talk about strategies because oftentimes when people engage in civil disobedience, there is some risk involved and different people have different risk thresholds. But I do believe, and I'm sure my co-host will agree, that civil disobedience and disobeying unjust laws is a very important tool that we ought to utilize more often lest we find ourselves on a train to Auschwitz. So uh, I'm John Bush. If the other two hosts want to introduce themselves. I'm Sal Mayweather. What's up? Excellent. And who else do we have with us tonight? Hey, guys. I'm Neepy Bali here in the food church. Welcome to my food church. La Iglesia de Comida. (laughs) (laughs) So... Yeah, let's just start off by kind of defining some terms here. And I want to shout out the audience that's watching on YouTube. We're also live on Odyssey as well. Um, Civil disobedience has been a tool that's been utilized in movements and activist groups for quite some time. I mean, even the founding of this country, the, uh, the American Revolution, obviously was a massive act of civil disobedience and treason at the time. But many people often refer to the good old Boston Tea Party, where they got together and threw the tea out in the ocean to protest the tea tax and all this stuff. And then in the American experience, civil disobedience is, is an important historical historical event that happens time and time again. Of course, you had the civil rights movement. And um, Murray Rothbard actually has this great essay called... Uh, What's it called? Oh, I don't remember what it's called. Maybe Sal can back me up. But he did this journal called Left and Right. Carl Hess was a part of it. There were some other thinkers that were a part of it. He was trying to bridge right libertarians and left, new left activists. And he talked a lot in one of the essays about it. It's called Liberty and the New Left. That's what it's called. You can find it on Mises' website, Liberty and the New Left. And he talked about how the civil rights movement tried and tried and tried in the halls of Congress to bring about change and to bring about equality under the law. Right. Uh, to end the um, segregation and, and get voting rights and begging the rulers really didn't bear any fruit. It wasn't until they embarked on the freedom rides and showed up in cities all across the South and disobeyed unjust laws. And it was very unpopular at the time with many of his colleagues. And when he was arrested, he wrote the letter from a Birmingham jail where he kind of pointed out the importance of, of being extreme and the, the important role that civil disobedience plays. So just want to point out that civil disobedience has a rich historical context 
And it's a tool that often is underutilized. And the more oppression and tyranny that we find ourselves facing, the more important it becomes. So, Sal, you just wrote a book or you put together this collection of essays. And a lot of it has to do with civil disobedience, role civil disobedience. What does civil disobedience mean to you? (laughs) Niti has it, too. And uh, why do you think it's important? Yeah, it's a huge part of anti-politics. I think it's... um it's definitely one of, if not the, one of the most powerful strategies that we have in the, uh, non-political playbook. So Thoreau wrote about it and there's a selection from Thoreau in here, but Gandhi used it, right? So Thoreau wrote about it, but Gandhi actually used it successfully. Uh, and he really, I think the way Gandhi used it is really um, a perfect example of how counter-economics should work. Um, it's peaceful, it's nonviolent, and he, what did he do? He used tax subversion to undermine the state where he knew it would hit him the hardest. Uh, so he was able to bring down, this is what I say in the book, is that he brought down the strongest empire in the world without ever even raising a fist, let alone firing a shot. And I think that if you can be that successful, then we as agorists need to say, whoa, let's take another look at this guy and see what he did and how he did it. And that's when you start coming into guys like Thoreau, uh, Benjamin Tucker was, it was another, uh, they, they used to call it passive resistance back then, but he was another one who, who, um, supported this idea. So I think it's a huge part of agorism. And obviously, you know, that's what we believe, right? We don't believe in being civilly obedient. We believe in being civilly disobedient. So it's sort of a, a necessary part of all of uh, agorism. What do you think, Niti? What does civil disobedience mean to you? I practice it every day. We just don't participate, you know? I mean, I think that a lot of people feel like you have to um, make some other kind of statement. I mean, it's as simple as when you're kids and you're playing on the playground and you got a bully on the playground and you just say, you know what? I'm just going to go over here and play. I don't need to play with you. And that's, that's, you know, that's what I've done with the food carts, right? Like they have a public food system that is, um, you know, poisoning everybody. And I don't want to participate in it. So I created my own private food system because if I, if I tried to do it in a public way, meaning like if I made it uh, accessible to everybody, like at a farmer's market, which is what I started doing in the beginning was I tried to just, you know, offer, um, a, a different list of options, you know, like a, a different brand of meat, for example. And was shut down immediately. And every, if, if, if every time you go to do something, someone's trying to say, no, 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 then we just say, oh, okay. And I just turned and pivoted and pivoted. I pivoted until I have a locked door with a doorbell and a membership. And we, we do it anyway. And we do it the way we want. And I tell everybody, you know, so it requires responsibility. Um, civil disobedience requires responsibility. And you have to be willing to, you know, go to jail. Gandhi was sitting in jail most of the time. But he was just being quiet and not participating. And people were, you know, supporting him. Um, you know, his wife had to be ready for him to be able to go to jail. And yeah. you shouldn't have to. You shouldn't have to maybe. Dude, that's the extremist. Um, are you willing to do I think, you know, what I think is important. I think one thing that Gandhi noticed, I think a lot of civil disobedient people who practice practice this have understood is that 
it really, the, the whole strategy boils down to forcing the state to expose their brutality to the masses. And part of that is sitting in jail or, or you know, having the police beat you with clubs or, or um, having uh, the police in Alabama, right, what they did with Martin Luther King Jr., who was another practitioner of civil disobedience. The whole idea is to force the state to, to show their hand to everybody so that everybody can see them as the liar and fraud that they actually are. Yeah, I think there's, with agorism and civil disobedience, there's kind of two approaches that people can take. There is the underground, hidden approach where you break the law or you defy edicts and ordinances and controls, but you do it underground style, right? Where people are just going about their lives, going about their businesses, trading under the table, not claiming this or that. Uh, smoking cannabis, for example, in many areas is still illegal. Um, and then there's the more, then there's like the political act of civil disobedience, which like Sal's describing is, is a tool to kind of force the aggressor's hand. And I think one of the big challenges comes with the fact that there is risk involved. And a lot of people, I think, neglect to put skin in the game and they don't want to put themselves at risk. They don't want to end up in jail. A lot of people fail to realize too, that more often than not, the man's not even going to come after you or do anything. They're so overwhelmed and, and they, they're so. They're uncommitted, rich. John. Yeah. And a lot of times they're uncommitted, but the, I would challenge folks that just comply with everything or out of fear of, of a response, they go, go along to get along just try to imagine what the world will be like if nobody does stand up. And, you know, we've we've all been experienced and we've studied the traditional type of tyranny, but now we're entering into this nightmarish, dystopian, futuristic tyranny with all this technocracy and COVID surveillance stuff. It's really creepy stuff. And so I, I, I want to encourage people when whenever you're feeling on the fence or hesitant about not wearing your mask in a store if you still have a mandate or not going to a large gathering, for example, or whatever it may be. Just think about what things are going to be like if we don't stand up, if we don't disobey, because oftentimes one of the best solutions we have to overcome all this nonsense is just simply to say no. Yeah. And, I, and you know, in the comments on our YouTube channel, Michael Bolden says, and he's right, says that it also forces the state to deal with the fact that they don't have enough personnel to enforce all of the laws. And I would expand that and say they don't have enough resources in general. That's exactly what happened with the cannabis laws. There was so much civil disobedience. There was so much, there was such a massive wave of noncompliance that it was just unenforceable. So for the state to maintain that law, it just, it just really uh, sort of exposed them as the illegitimate fraud that they actually are. So the only choice that they had was to just renege on the law. And that happens a lot, too. That happened with Gandhi as well. Like, I forget what the exact laws were, but there was a few times where he was just let out of jail and uh, all of a sudden, like, laws would change and they would ease up on him just because if they continued to try to enforce it and they failed, it would they would just appear to be illegitimate. And I think that's another key, key piece of this. Heck, yeah. Yeah, I think... I think that, um, go ahead, Niti. 
No, I was just saying, you know, people people want to have to feel a sense of security when they want to do something like, you know, um, I was talking on one of the episodes about land, for example, you know, like if you own land, then try to get the patent for it. And and folks want to know exactly how that's going to look and how that's going to work. And I'm like, well, I can't generalize and just speak, you know, like make some blanket statement about how to get your title. You need an attorney and you need to try to figure it out. Um, or, or if we're trying to do this food church, they want some, they want me to, to, you know, like show them how to do this and not, be, not have any risk. And I'm like, <laughs> um, what I'm doing is, is blatant civil disobedience. Like at the end of it all, that's what it is, but it's because it's what's correct. And it's because we, the people have to be prepared to take responsibility if what is happening within the system is, is incorrect. And so you have to be brave. You have to be bold. And, um, I mean, I don't know. I think, I think both of you have exemplified that time and time again. I think that that's one of the, um, that's one of the main benefits of civil disobedience is that as soon as you, and agorism too, as soon as you start practicing it, as soon as you say, look, I'm not going to listen to these, you know, ridiculous, you know, arbitrary rules that have been placed on me at that exact moment, you become free. And I think that's one of the, the, the main benefits of civil disobedience versus like the drawn out political strategy where you have to wait years and years and years to hope for some little bit of change. Whereas we're, with the strategies that we're discussing here, uh, that's just, you, there's no waiting, there's no waiting period. You sort of just, you, you skip right to the fun part. So. Well, anybody who's ever really tried to go that route would know that that doesn't work. I mean, we have to just take the bull You'd by the You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. Be the change. Well, I mean, you're talking about Gandhi. He's like, be the change you wish to see. So be the change because you can't be waiting for the change. Do it. Cut to the chase. I think there's a, there's a lot of fear in activist groups, and I just want to address the Freedom Cell Network specifically because, and this isn't a generalization for everyone, but, you know, as a leader in the network, I often have reports from people that uh, they're talking amongst themselves or some people are seeking advice or they're having struggles within their organizing. And today I learned uh, from one of my right-hand ladies that there's some folks that are that are expressing frustration because... There's people in their groups that may be part of a telegram group or in some sort of chat group or on the website, freedomcells.org, but they're having trouble getting people to come out and to meet up and to go to events and to go do things. And the reason is because they're afraid that there could be some sort of retaliation or something. And so I just want to encourage people to realize, you know, a lot of fear there, there's some folks that say fear stands for false events appearing real. A lot of it is just stuff that people build up in their head. Or maybe they spend too much time watching uh, InfoWars or, or, or NaturalNews.com, the, uh, the Health Ranger, where there's all, a lot of exaggeration, a lot of hyperbole. And at the end of the day, like y'all were discussing, the state is completely overwhelmed. And with the example of Freedom Cell Network and specifically – a lot of what we're doing is like pulling our kids out of public school and gardening and uh, and exploring off-grid technology and trading in cryptocurrency. And this weekend, for example, there's over 130 of us that are going to have a party at the river. 
And it's like these activities aren't even illegal. None of what we're doing is even civilly disobedient. Yet people are still afraid. And I often think about when people are concerned about being part of the Freedom Cell Network or, or just being an activist in general, you got to realize whether it was a false flag or not, I think it probably was, there was a bunch of people that just stormed the freaking Capitol building and like busted in, you know, and there's militia groups and there's right wing extremist groups and there's terror activity and all sorts of stuff. I think the the feds and the law enforcement really have their hands full. So for folks that are feeling hesitant or afraid, I would encourage you just to, to recognize that we outnumber them. They are weak unless you build them up to be strong in your head. They're fragmented. They're losing credibility every single day. And then on top of that, you got to ask yourself, what does the future look like if I do nothing? And what type of world do I want my children to inherit? Do they want to be in Australia right now? I mean, it's so stupid. Yeah. Like they're telling them how long they can, they can go work out for an hour or whatever. And, yeah. you know, like, like, like you were saying, John, you know, I, I can talk about raw milk like this, right? Like it's not illegal to possess the raw milk. It's not illegal to produce the raw milk. It's not illegal to drink the raw milk. It's not illegal to buy the raw milk. It is illegal for people to sell you the raw milk or beef for that matter. Now they're trying to say you can have one bite of beef per month or something stupid. This is what this lunatic's trying to say. And I find it interesting that, you know, our government's only work is to defend our freedom and to protect and defend our civil liberties. I mean, it is not their work to tell me how to stay healthy. It is not their work to try to protect me from myself. Really, that is not their work. I mean, it is my, it is my free, it's my civil right my my civil liberty, my personal liberty, if I want to, you know, whatever it is that I want to have for my personal experience, as long as it's not harming anyone else, then it's really none of your business. Like, mind your business, you know? Like, to the point that John was saying about risk, it's like, so you have, there's you can, you can almost break this down into two categories. You can face the risk of having to deal with the sort of oppression that, like, Needy just described, like, do you really want to risk that or you can risk trying to like live free? Which one is better? You can risk oppression or you can risk trying to live free. For me, I'd rather choose the latter rather than the former eight days out of the week because I, it's just I don't want to live like a slave. So you can choose to live like a slave and be afraid of what the oppressor is going to do to you. Or you can accept the fact that you are going to be free and you're going to do your best to not run into them. And we do that through, this is the difference between agorism and being a sovereign citizen. We do that through operational security. Yeah. Let's go to one of the comments. So for folks that are watching along on uh, YouTube, I don't think we have the technology to do this with Odyssey yet, but if you're watching on the Live Free Now channel or on the Unloose the Goose channel and you ask a question, we can feature your question. So let's see a uh, Sundog here who's involved in the Freedom Cell Network. Could we also maybe succeed in trying to get the enforcers to step down to human level from authoritarian arrogance and understand we're all humans? What percentage at last might open their eyes? Cops need to understand they're on the wrong side. And I'm just doing my job is not an excuse and does not relieve them of the responsibility for their actions. What's well, they took an on? oath too, right? Like, I mean, I think they took an oath and like we can ask them to remember their oath, their oath keepers. So you can help remind them, you know, like calmly. You can't 
you know, you're not, you, you have to be careful how you're, how you approach these things. You can't go up to them all mad dog crazy or whatever. But, you know, if you want an institution to behave like a human being, then that's right. just not going to happen. You know, like the moment that we, you know, an a, a, a institution is, is created, it is no longer liable as a human being, which is the reason it does not behave like a human being. So that is the reason why the medical mafia, for example, can murder people left, right and center and they don't have to take any responsibility. That is the reason why they can right now uh, violate your sacred bloodstream with absolutely no concern for the side effect. And people can be harmed, maimed and murdered and there will be absolutely zero recourse. There's absolutely zero recourse for that. That is the reason why it's got to be your personal choice to participate or not for them to mandate something like that is ridiculous. And sorry, I'm not trying to turn this into that conversation. Sorry, John. <laughs> you don't have to apologize for me. I think the medical I mean, the civil disobedience of, I mean, right now though, I, I feel like it has a place in this conversation a little bit because I know in Florida, my friend who's right there in Tampa, Sal, uh, she is, can no longer work at her job because she was working for the state and they are saying you must have had the jab or you cannot work there, which is discrimination no. on so many levels. I don't know. That's interesting. I thought that Ron DeSantis had made that illegal. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's crazy. odd. Maybe she lost her job. Federal government? She, it's state. I thought old Ron, Ron had y'all's back over there, I Sal. Ron, I thought Ron was on top of that. It's a you, need to go lobby. you need to go to lobby, Sal. Yeah. yeah. Lobby. Um, I, I want to know what's going on. The mayor did that in Tampa. Oh, yeah. Sometimes the mayor in Austin, in central, in Texas, a lot of the school districts are defying the governor's orders, which is like, I don't like the governor's orders when it, when it goes against freedom. But if the governor wants to stand up for freedom, I'm all about it. Same thing with like home rule. Oftentimes the yeah. Texas legislature will, will overrun or overturn local ordinances. And usually usually I'm like, we want there to be local government and the powers at the local level, but I don't really give a damn at the end of the day who's doing what. If someone's going to stand up for my freedom, I, I appreciate that. But back to Sundog's comment, um, you know, I think the challenge with getting law enforcement to be on our side and on the same page, at the end of the day, their paycheck comes from enforcing these laws and edicts. And that's such a powerful motivator for people, especially when it comes to police, because not only are they earning a living in the now, and oftentimes it's a pretty good living, but they also have this pension that they're waiting and this really cushy retirement. So the incentives are really just stacked against us when it comes to the cops doing the right thing, because if they start speaking out, the thin blue line and the superiors are going to uh, give them the boot. And then just the same with like shadow government type stuff. Whenever you tow the party line or you cover for one of your buddies, when there's an internal investigation, for example, uh, you're more likely to get promoted. That's the same thing that happens with like Eric Holder. He was a part of the Oklahoma city bombing cover up. And then he became the department of justice head under, under Obama. So that's one of my concerns. And then one more note on, on your friend, Niti. Um, I don't want to be like a, like a victim blamer because I have sympathy for everyone that's going through these circumstances, but we really got to take responsibility for the, the, the position that we find ourselves in because there's so many people that have allowed themselves to be 
leveraged and allowed themselves to be controlled and manipulated by working for the state, for example. So there's, there's libertarians out there. There's folks that are against the mandates, against the vaccines, yet they work for the very institution that is forcing people to do things against their will. And so I really want to challenge people. I have, I try to have sympathy, but at the end of the day, we all have the ability to to live a life that's in line with our values. And it may be difficult and it may take a little bit of transition and a strategy and it may take time. But when you work for yourself or you work for a like-minded company, or at least you work for someone that respects your, your bodily autonomy, you don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. So I really want to encourage people to take responsibility for the places they find themselves in. And if you, if you're in a place where you can be leveraged for, this or that or whatever comes in the future, stop working there and find a new line of work. I agree with you. We were talking about that because, you know, we were saying, I mean, and, you know, she's she's um, in this particular situation. She's a single mom. And, you know, she was just wanting to be able to have security, um, but also do her her passion so she was doing her side gig and she just has to do it more now. Right. And I kept saying, well, why aren't, you know, you just need to push harder on that. And I think, you know, I mean, I'm not trying to I, look, I don't judge mothers. They're, we're doing a whole yeah. lot of things. Single motherhood a single is a struggle, man. Motherhood yeah, is a struggle in general, fatherhood too, but I can't imagine going it alone. Wow. Right. I mean, if you're a single parent and the other parent is totally absent and you have to do like every single thing, she was just trying to have that was her backup plan. That was her insurance, like to just have extra, you know. And so she's she's not going to be ruined by any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, um, also, we shouldn't have to go through all this drama. So but, yeah, I, I agree with you, John. I mean, I've been saying this like, you know, and especially for all of our kids, like we're we're teaching them, you know, like you, we're not raising you to go get a job. You don't need a. You only need to go to, to university to get a degree, to have a piece of paper, to get a job. And then some other folks, you know, a lot of other adults in the community around me are like, well, what if you want them to learn how to do something? I'm like, well, they can learn how to do that by working with somebody who's doing it. And, you know. I think apprenticeship programs and internships, you know, I think a lot of business owners really need to help step up. I would love to see more business owners step up right now and offer internships and offer, you know, like friendly face. Uh, and like, I, I would like to see more business owners be bold and, and actually practice more civil disobedience because they really can help change the community a whole lot harder and faster. As a business owner here, I am really hard and fast standing by that and supporting other folks that are around. I have a lot of members. A lot of my members are business owners and I promote, you know, and I'm pushing all of them into corners and saying, you know, are, are you also falling into this? Are you playing the game? Because you're a business owner. Why, if I talk to a business owner and they're playing this game and then they tell me that they don't, they're not for the reindeer games, but they're playing the reindeer games. What are you doing? Like you're a business owner. Yeah. Why are you complying? I think agorism is, is a perfect um, vehicle because like you said, she's a sing your friend is a single mother. And so oftentimes people find themselves in, in difficult positions and I think about I, I think about this a lot when it comes to Social Security. Right. So we in the United States and in many other developed nations are in a situation where P 
people have just become dependent on the state and the state sets up these institutions purposefully to uh, make people rely on them. Right. And so the way things used to work is whenever in the example of Social Security, for example, whenever there's elderly parents or folks that aren't able to work more and they're ready to retire, uh, there would be a community that would rally around them and help them. Or better yet, the children and the grandchildren would be there to support their parents and their grandparents or even their great grandparents. But we have these institutions like Social Security that come into play and take that role, right? And you also used to be the church that would support folks. There would be closer knit communities, much like the Amish are doing now, a modern example. But when it comes to single parents and people feeling as though they're dependent on a job that can control them or a state job, it's really up to each and every one of us to lead by example and to go back to the way things used to be where we all support one another, right? So I would challenge folks when it comes to your parents or the elders in your community, if it's an activist community or whatever, your little crew, show up, you know, when when someone loses their loved one and they're older and now they're all alone or when someone's just reaching that age where it's difficult for them to take care of themselves, it's really up to each and every one of us to show up for one another. Same thing when it comes to single parents, right? We got to go back to the tribe mentality because it'll make it easier when we rally around one another to make it uh, less um, likely that people can be leveraged, controlled and manipulated and socially engineered to do things that they don't find in their best interest. I agree. I agree. I, I, I love to see, uh, communities getting together. One of, one of our, uh, people in our communities, they were going through a divorce and a lot of her single friends, you know, gathered around her and they actually even created like a roommate situation because they needed, you know, they felt like she needed to have an extra person in the house to just be there, um, to help with the kids, you know, and, it's been three years that I've been watching them support each other. And now that couple actually is getting back together again. And I feel like maybe that was just because their community rose, you know, around them and helped them figure some things out or have a break from each other for a minute just to be able to bring themselves back together again. Um, I don't know. It's just been a really beautiful thing to watch. And if that can help inspire anyone else out there so that, you know, you might want to just look around and see what's going on in your community and see if there's a way to help some of well, your this friends. Sort of like, this sort of ties into what John was saying before about how important entrepreneurship is in solving a lot of these problems, specifically a lot of these COVID related, uh, you know, how they're, they're requiring vaccines and masks vis-a-vis -vis your employer. The way around that, the way Agorism solves that and resolves it is through entrepreneurship. That's why Sam Conkin stresses entrepreneurship. That's why John Bush stresses entrepreneur, entrepreneurship. That's why Jace, Jason Stapleton uh, stresses entrepreneurship, right? Because that it brings you that extra little bit of freedom. So um, ironically enough, though, that's also how you create a community, right? If you read Carl Hess's Community Technology, you know that the best way to create a community and, and is to, and by the way, the best way to find other, other libertarians and other agorists is to do business with them. And you do that through entrepreneurship. Heck yeah. Yeah. I'm always like the freedom cell network. We literally built this website and this community and these tools so people can find like-minded people in their area and they can get together and jam with them. And 
I'm an entrepreneur. My, I have two businesses now. They're growing. I even see people there in the chat that I do business with. So shout out to all my clients there, whether it's Kratom or cryptocurrency consulting and stuff. Um, that brings me great joy that everyone's all tied through and like-minded. Uh, a lot of these entrepreneurial gurus talk about your dream clients and you go find your dream clients. And it's like my dream clients are folks that follow up with an email like, hey, can you send me the tracking number? I wasn't able to see it through the email. By the way, did you see what that that clown Fauci said the other day? You know, and it's like it's all my people. But either way, um, at my <laughs> business, uh, my two staffers, one of them I've known for like eight or nine years. She was actually an Occupy person. She's kind of left-leaning. Um, so I always tease her and call her a communist. But she's not a communist. But nonetheless, she's a good friend of mine. She's an activist. And she's like-minded. And she's cool peeps. And she works with me. And then my new guy that's amazing and is doing incredible work, he's the one that helped build this really cool studio. I found him through the Freedom Cell Network. I just put out to the Freedom Cell Network, the local group and some of the regional groups. I was like, hey, I'm looking to hire someone. I can do A, B, and C. Um, private message me or comment below. And then sure enough, he reached out and was like, hey, man, I feel like I'm drawn to Texas. I appreciate your work. I want to support you. So it doesn't have to be some pie in the sky thing or some hopeful thing we can do. We can leverage our networks and our communities and start working with one another and put ourselves in a situation where we can't be controlled. And I always tease my guys when I'm like, I'm like, guys, we need, I need this. We need to have a meeting. Um, you know, the vaccine just got approved by the FDA. So I also tease them and say, um, well, you know, I'm going to require a drug test of you guys. And you pass oh, the drug God. test and show up negative for everything. Then you can't work here. But <laughs> yeah. you show up negative well, for everything. That's funny. <laughs> you, you know, what's funny, though. Like, if you think about it, right, not to sort of beat a dead horse here, but we talk about the we talk about the community that is being built around the freedom cells and how people are working together. Take a look at what's happening with the Libertarian Party and the Mises Caucus. How it's the opposite, right? Instead of people getting along and working together, there's infighting and jockeying for power and position and stuff like that. So it just, like I said, not not to beat a dead horse, but it just goes to show you. Uh, what a disaster um, politics actually is versus entrepreneurship and agorism. Yeah, that's a good yeah, point. For sure. And I, I see you, I see you beating on the uh, uh, Niti. There's a little bit of an echo, I think, coming back in from the speakers. Um, so I'm trying to figure that out. Um, I, see I, I was muted and now I'm not muted. Is that still an echo? No more echo. We're good. Okay. Oh, so when I'm, when I'm muted, then there's an echo. When I'm unmuted, it's not an echo? No, I muted you because there was an echo. But now it's gone, so we're good. Oh, okay. That's what matters, as long as the echo's gone. Um, I see you beating up on the poor uh, LP Mises Caucus guys over there, Sal. And, uh, yeah, they, they don't like it too much. I'm watching along. <laughs> I think it's interesting. But you do bring a good point, because they're, like, vying for control. Right. And it's like this competition. And if one party's one faction is in control, then the other faction is out of control. It doesn't have to be that way. It can be everyone collaborating in this cohesive type of thing. But when you go into this monopoly institution, even if it's based on the principles of liberty, is it really because it's kind of antithetical in some ways? But that's a great point. Um, yeah. And one of the reasons why the state is just so terrible is because it is this one size fits all 
zero-sum game type of situation. I think that's why people feel driven to civil disobedience because they're just so pissed off that their resources, their time, their energy is all getting used for things that they don't even agree in. If we could just shatter that and everyone can just go about their lives and do their own thing and cooperate whenever it benefits them, then the world would be a much better place and people wouldn't be all pissed off all the time. You know what's what's interesting? Maybe this would be a good time to... Um tell this brief little story because it's, I actually cover it in anti-politics, but we're talking about civil disobedience here, but a lot of people don't realize how many historical examples of civil disobedience there actually are and how successful they've been. And we spoke like about Gandhi and stuff like that, but um, there are countless other examples. One of my favorite other uh, instances of civil disobedience being used successfully is against the Nazis. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Rosenstrasse, but Rosenstrasse was um, a protest in Nazi Germany, which obviously protesting was illegal, but it was a protest of, of women who were protesting their spouses were, were arrested. There was These were Christian women who were married to Jewish men. The Jewish men were arrested, and they went and protested at outside of their collection center before they were deported to the concentration camps. And Goebbels and Hitler, there's a sort of a correspondence between the two of them where they discuss, like, well, what are we going to do? Are we really going to crack down like hard on these Aryan German women? And if they if they don't, doesn't that sort of uh, undermine their whole message of, of racial purity and German unity and stuff like that? So they were really in a bind. They were put in a bind by these women. So, again, like just to, to take a step back and look at the power of civil disobedience. Here you have a group of women standing toe-to-toe with the Gestapo and Adolf Hitler. And in the end, they, Hitler and, and uh, Goebbels end up releasing all of these Jewish men. It was the only instance in Nazi Germany of Jews being released once they were captured. So, again, like the power of that, you're not going to get that through politics, right? He wasn't, that didn't happen through uh, the German electorate. Nor did it happen through violence, by the way, right? It didn't, this wasn't some sort of boogaloo or how many failed assassination attempts were there against Hitler that, that didn't work out. But it was these women who stood toe to toe with them because they weren't afraid because they knew deep down that they were, that they were free and they understood that like intuitively. And I think that's what made them so powerful. Yeah. You know, women are just so strong and powerful, especially when their family is threatened. And when you were sharing that story, I was reminded of the story of, of Chedan in Michoacan. Talk about civil disobedience. So this is a small community, uh, maybe 20,000 people in Michoacan, a state in Mexico in the mountains. And Michoacan is known for the cartel violence and corruption. It's one of the bloodiest, most dangerous states in all of Mexico. Well, there's a small town, Chedan, that has a sacred forest. And the people of Chiron are indigenous people that have been in that area for thousands of years. And in fact, they fought off the Aztecs. They fought off the Spaniards. They didn't successfully fight them off, but they put up a pretty damn good fight. And so in the area, they found that cartel groups were working in conjunction with the local government and the municipal police to illegally log their sacred forest. And they were tearing down the trees, selling the trees, and then they were planting avocados. Many people are unfamiliar, like cartels are really into avoc- the avocado trade, which is interesting. 
And so rather than just take it or rather than appealing to the state government of Michoacan, uh, which is corrupt as well, or the federal government, which has no control over the country, they decided uh, basta ya is a Spanish phrase. Enough is enough. And they decided that they were going to overthrow the local police and who started it, what started this little uh, I wouldn't call it a revolution. I'd recall, I'll call it an uprising, or as they call it in Spanish, a levantamente, levantamente, to rise up, a stand up. Uh, it was the women. They were fed up with it. They had enough. There were kidnappings. Their husbands and the men were being abused by the and laughed at and scoffed at by the cartel members. And so they rose up and they like got a bunch of big boulders and they blocked the road where the trucks would come taking the trees out and they dragged them out along with the men. They got everyone. They rang the church bell. Everyone gathered in town square. They dragged these guys out of their of their trucks and they didn't string them up by their necks, but they string them up by their feet. And they were so pissed off. They like would string them up on a pole and then drop them down. And they ended up finding arms and throwing out all of the police and restoring this indigenous form of governance. It's still a government, but it's a government that works for the people because it's 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 their government. Right. Not a fan of government, but it works for them. And so who am I to judge as an anarchist? Right. And so they instituted their own police force uh, of community members, not people from outside communities. And I think it's a beautiful example of of civil disobedience when you have strength in numbers. That's what I try to emphasize with the Freedom Cell Network, strength in numbers. If you're a lone wolf or a city, you can make yourself a sitting duck. But if it's 20 people, 200 people, 2,000, 10,000, if you get the whole damn community on board, you really can find quite a bit of freedom. Yeah, I love that. I think I think we, we all have a lot to learn from the Mexican anarchists, that for sure. Another... Um, Another one of my favorite stories of civil disobedience is probably one that's more well known, and that's the story of Ross Ulbricht, right? Because, you know, what a perfect execution of the civil disobedient playbook. For the first time ever, Ross was able to, again, through entrepreneurship, Ross was able to create the first truly free market man has ever known. And then again, going back to what we said earlier about the whole point of civil disobedience is about forcing the state to expose their brutality to the masses. Certainly, Ross has done that with a, with a double life plus 40 sentence. Um, obviously, not that the idea is to go to jail, but when you do go to jail and something, something does happen, you, you, the whole point of, of the civil disobedience strategy, again, is to show everybody how nasty the state actually can be. And I think Ross not only did that, but he, again, he had the added benefit of, like I said, creating the first truly free market ever, which is huge. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out, Ross. People can still contribute to support uh, their efforts and support the family. I know his mom, Lynn, has just gone through hell and she's such an advocate for him. Their website's freeross.org, freeross.org. It's such a challenge, though, Sal, because I know like Ross spoke to this big Bitcoin conference. I think it might have been the Miami Bitcoin conference is one of the biggest ones. And I mean, he sounded I know that he's they're like really torturing him there and putting him in solitary confinement and stuff. But he sounded so regretful, you know, and so one of the big challenges and I experienced in my life, like I was a lot more abrasive and in your face and cop blocking. I got arrested twice, standing up for my rights. I guess both times were civil disobedience, especially the first time. But then I had kids and I was kind of like, man, like I got arrested when I had an uh, almost a newborn and my ex-wife was like, 
uh-uh, we're not doing this anymore. You know, I'm not going to go bail you out with a newborn on my breast. But it's just that challenge of like, where's the line? Because I know it's easy to say on a podcast, right? And like Ross, in many ways, it was a, uh, a martyr, right? But like Ross's mom sure as hell isn't happy about what he did. And judging from the way Ross communicates now, um, he's not sure as hell not happy, you know? So it's like, it's just the risks involved. Well, Go ahead. Well, no, I'm just saying, you know, everybody's risk tolerance is always changing. So, like, it all depends on your circumstances. Obviously, somebody who's 17 and single, they're going to have a much higher risk tolerance than somebody, you know, who has, you know, kids and, and stuff like that and, and a mortgage. So, yeah, risk tolerance is certainly relative, no doubt about it. Um, and, yeah, Russ does sound uh, regretful when he speaks, and I think that a lot of that has to do with his hopes for a pardon. I don't I, I don't know the guy. I really can't speak to any of that, but that's just my speculation. The one thing I'll know is that because he gave that speech, he was actually put back into the hole for giving that speech. So he's still being civilly disobedient to this very day, and he's doing it in a way that creates more freedom and more liberty. Still, despite having having two life sentences plus 40 years, He's still being civil, civilly disobedient and, and using that to create more freedom and liberty for the rest of us. So, like John said, go to freerust.org and do everything you can to help this guy out because he really got a raw deal. And one of the things that really, really chaps my ass about this whole case is that Judge Catherine B. Forrest, who is a domestic terrorist, let's, let's call it what it is, the former federal judge who gave Ross a first-time nonviolent offender Double life plus 40, which is more than most people get at The Hague, by the way, more than most African dictators get. This woman took a job after she retired from her job as a domestic terrorist and took a job at a swanky New York law firm where she's making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. So DM me if you want her email address or the number to that law firm. <laughs> yeah, she's a swine. I was at that trial and it was obviously a, a railroad railroad job. You know, I think something that will make it easier for everyone and less risky for everyone is if everyone just did a little bit more, right? If everyone's just a little bit more civil disobedient and everyone just disobeyed a little bit more laws, it'll make it easier for everyone to stand up. Because oftentimes people like Ross, they're just so way ahead of the curve and so bold in their activism, they get smashed. But if we let 10,000 dark markets and, and agorist markets bloom, then it creates a situation just like with cryptocurrency, right? If, if, if Satoshi Nakamoto was visible and he's like, Hey guys, I, I'm going to do this thing. Come check it out. It'd be easy to crush. But now we have a situation where literally there's over 8,000 different cryptocurrencies. And no matter how hard the state tries to posture as though they have the ability to control it, they can't control it. The cat's out of the bag. So I think just the sheer volume just like with, with Martin Luther King and Gandhi, right? It wasn't just them. They got the masses involved, right? Not the masses, but they got a significant number of people to march with them and to be disobedient. And it created an uncontrollable situation that caught the hearts and minds of the masses and the general public. So we need more people. You don't have to go as far as Ross did, right? Or, you know, put yourself at risk, but everyone can do more. And if we all do just a little bit more, it makes it easier for people to go and do big things, I think. 
Well, that's yeah, where yeah. like the people that aren't brave enough to maybe want to have to march out there in front of everyone. You know, I like the approach of just, you know, bleeding their income. So, you know, redirect your financial contributions and and make a statement in that regard, because there's a lot of people right now I know that are very frustrated. And I'm like, well, you know, if you're not going to be brave enough not to, um, you know, like they don't want to they're they're like. There's there's so many folks out there right now that just don't want to have any kind of controversy or any kind of face to face. But, you know, I'm like, find the places where you can take your money out of and move it into the places that you can move it into. And that way you can kind of anonymously defund these other programs. Yeah, there's a strategy called Exit and Build. Uh, Real quick, somebody named Shakti Veda that's watching along says any groups here in Houston, Texas? Yes, indeed. There's a very large contingent of Freedom Cell members in Houston, Texas. You can find them at freedomcells.org. If you register on the website, freedomcells.org. Very active on Telegram. There's a huge group with hundreds of Houstonians that are part of the Freedom Cell Network. So I strongly encourage you to join us. Um, I'm here in Central Texas, not very far down the road. And we got a bunch of people in Dallas, Fort Worth, Austin, Houston, all over the state, all over the world, really. There's almost 25,000 people now. So uh, please join us. Uh, yeah, freedomcells.org, freedomcells.org. The strategy that we practice in the Freedom Cells, to get back to what I was saying, is called a exit and build, right? So you got the political strategy. Some people are calling for violence. We reject that wholeheartedly. Um, but our strategy is to exit and build, which means exit the statist, centralized, coercive institutions and build something new, which is exactly what Nifi did. She exited the controlled, permitted farmer's market and is building her own thing. But to go back to what what you guys were saying, or what Nifi was saying, how some people don't want to be on the front lines, we can exit and build, and we can also build so that we may exit. So a lot of people will find that there's all these different areas that you can exit and build and build an exit that are absolutely no risk whatsoever. Like, what are we talking about that? Because like, I find a lot of folks are asking questions about these kind of things and they feel like everything else that they've heard is so big. And like, let's talk about it. Why don't we talk about some of the small things that they can do? Like, what are some small, you know, what, where's a place to start? I think a lot of folks are super overwhelmed with that. And I think a lot of folks just will throw out, you know, like grow your own food. And I'm like, or just make a friend, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) or learn, learn a skill. We were talking about this the other day. I was saying, you know, like learn how to do anything new. You know, one of my friends is learning how to be a lumberjill. It's just not what you would think, but it's, it's, it's a skill. It's, it's something else, you know, like take a class to learn how to do one something and it, you don't know what that's going to lead you towards. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go round robin and each one of us can throw out a low to no risk activity that people can take that will help them to exit the matrix and help us to all build a better system. So I'll start with a super easy one. If you pull out your checkbook and it has the words Chase Manhattan Bank, which is a David Rockefeller outfit, or if it has Wells Fargo or Bank of America or Citibank, very simple thing to do would be to go from a major centralized federal banking institution to a local credit union, or better yet, open up a cryptocurrency account, set up a crypto wallet as well. So there's one thing. What do you got, Niti? I'm going to push learn new skills. You know, learn new skills because, you you know, people are saying they, they don't know what they're going to do. 
they don't know what they would do if they if they are not working their job. So then, you know, I, I feel like a lot of folks just don't feel like they otherwise have any worth or value. And so, you know, learn how to do something like take pottery. You know that you can always people are always going to need plates and, and dishes, you know, or, you know, you, I think a lot of people look at that and they say, oh, it's art. No, make functional stuff. Learn how to, you know, knit. Learn how to, you know, do something like I've, I was taking an immediate emergency medical class where, you know, I was learning how to what what to do in, in, in the situation. I remember my husband was like, what are you going to do with that? Like, you know, you're not out in a battle somewhere. And I'm like, well, you know, we were just leaving the neighborhood the other day and a car had flipped over and this guy is laying in the street like I could go check him out now. After I've taken that class, I know how to go run up to him and check him out. And so, you know, that's something else I can do. One, some new thing. Learn how to do something new. There you go. See, you might be interested in I think people are watching people do things, but no one's actually trying to learn how to do something. Yeah. So. All right. All right. What do you got, Sal? Oh, man, there's so many of them. I guess, like low risk ways to get started, obviously grow your own food, but 3d print your own guns, a start a side hustle is a good one. Um, one of my favorites is honestly is to onboard local merchants and businesses to crypto, go into their stores and ask them to uh, start accepting crypto for goods and services and then show them how to do it. Download the bitcoin.com register app and, and show these merchants how to use it and, Hopefully you can get them, uh, you know, grow the, the Bitcoin or Bitcoin Cash network. Heck yeah. Bitcoin Cash, especially because Bitcoin's a challenge for low, low cost yeah. goods for merchants. But old, old Roger Bear and Bitcoin.com has got a lot of, of good resources there. Um, I would encourage people, if you find yourself dependent on pharmaceuticals to try to find natural remedies that can replace those pharmaceuticals. Um, just a quick plug for my own business, Kratom and cannabis are great alternatives to prescription pain medicine, anxiety medicine, depression medicine, coffee, caffeine, all sorts of stuff. Although coffee's natural too, totally fine. But, you know, and then of course there's exercise and stretching and, and changing your diet. But if you find yourself dependent on pharmaceuticals, you know, if crap hits the fan and you don't have a stash, you're going to be in a lot of trouble, not to mention a lot of these pharmaceuticals have really terrible side effects. So it's just one way to opt out, low risk, not going to be in jail, and you just may find you have a higher, higher quality of life. What else you got? Um, I'll put a plug in for myself, too, and say you can coach with me and I can teach you how to get off of all of the drugs as well. We can work together, change your diet, change your lifestyle and gain your health, food freedom for health independence. Heck yeah. What else? Oh, here's one for your kids. Pull your kids out of government school and homeschool or at least a private school or a homeschool co-op. That's not illegal. It's low risk. You're not going to get in trouble and it's exiting and building. Unschool. Let them try to learn how to build an enterprise. Going back to what we, we were talking about earlier about like risk and stuff like that. I think one way to sort of mitigate the risk that's associated with civil disobedience is to practice operational security, right? That's a, that's a huge piece of agorism that I don't think many agorists pay enough attention to. And I think the way to do that is, is to 
keep keep good privacy practices, practice secure computing, and use encrypted communication. So, um, you know, take that for what it's worth. The different tools that are out there are always constantly changing. One day tour, one day you hear people say tour is great. Other times, other people say don't use tour. The same goes for Signal, but you, that's really sort of the the three holy grails of operational security at this moment. What are the three tour signal? No, I was, I was going to say just in general, the three categories would be privacy, secure computing and encrypted communications. None of which are illegal. In fact, encryption was illegal at one point and is one of the early cypherpunks. I forget which one it was. I taught it, taught it in, in my crypto workshop, we talked about like the history and evolution of money and the cypherpunks, their goal was to create sovereign freedom, internet money, right? And one of them, uh, I think it was Adam Back, actually, he shared a piece of encryption on an email server on a, through this little newsletter that they would do, like a forum, and that was breaking the law early on. And they fought it really? in court, and it was like, it wasn't that long ago, about 20, 30 years, that encryption was illegal. But now, because it just spread, just like cryptocurrency, it can't be controlled anymore. I think we need to double down and spread all this stuff and spread the message and spread the technologies because the more people that embrace it, the harder it is to stop. You know, people, John, they think that, you know, when we talk about encrypted communications, we're only talking about telegrams, privacy chats or signal or something like that. But this really goes back um, a long, a long time. Um I don't know how old maybe the listeners are, but if you grew up in like a city in like the 90s or the 80s, you might remember uh, the drug dealers had pagers, right? And, uh, <laughs> and, and and you and what would happen is they would hit you. You would hit them up with a code, and this code would tell them uh, what you wanted, how much you wanted, stuff like that. Then they would hit you back with a code on your pager, and that code it was all it's all cryptography. It's just it's just a much more primitive form of a, of a you know, the sort of cryptography that's used in blockchains and stuff like that. Obviously there's a huge difference, but um, <laughs> this, the same goes for like bookies, right? These old school bookies who, uh, you know, they have to remember all these different bets that people would have. And maybe John wants to bet on the horses, but Needy likes to bet on football. So <laughs> I have to keep, I have to keep the Sunday line in my pocket and I have to keep all this other information. So what they would do is they'll actually have like a little, if you run a, a bookie's pockets, you'll find a little piece of paper that's nobody can understand it except for them, but they can, they can translate that in their minds to who has what bets and for how much and on what different events and stuff like that. So these concepts go back a long time. We're just talking about how to apply them with modern technology. We got people dropping, uh, dropping little codes, old Michael Bolden. Michael Bolden's the man, by the way, and talk about, Civil disobedience. He's with the Tenth Amendment Center, and there's. I think this is old pager code. Yeah, you turn it upside down. It says boobs. <laughs> Niti's being silly over there too with hello and all that stuff. But uh, you know, the cool thing too is um, there are certain state governments that are so bold as to be civilly disobedient against the federal government, which I think is pretty cool, right? You guys talked about the cannabis prohibition that completely went out the federal government hardly even tries to enforce it anymore because states join the people in rejecting it there's all sorts of firearm prohibitions uh it's i think we're in really interesting times when different levels of government are fighting against each other i don't appreciate this civil disobedience but local school districts 
are being civilly disobedient against the governor and his his prohibition of mask mandates for children. And even though that's even though my kids aren't in government school, but I have friends whose kids are in government school and they're fighting back and going to the school board meetings. The best thing they can do is pull their kids out of government school. I always try to chime in with that. But I do think it's cool for for libertarians and for agorists and anarchists. When you have all these different levels of government that are fighting against each other, it really just helps to underscore how much of a clown show it is, you know? It really is. They're tripping all over each other, aren't they? They're a bunch of dorks. It's almost like um, like a sort of meta level of civil disobedience. And this is sort of Michael Bowden's, uh, Bolden's uh, area of expertise here, but that's exactly what they're doing, right? It's all about state governments challenging the federal government. And what we're talking about is individuals challenging governments. So it's sort of the same thing, just on a, on a much different level here. Tell us more about your book, Sal. Where can people get it? You said there's a lot of civil disobedience. It, it's a collection of essays, right? It is. It is. Anti-politics. It's a collection of agorist essays. Uh, Lily Forrester wrote the uh, foreword. And actually, we have a, uh, a selection here by Thoreau just called On Civil Disobedience. Yeah. But like I said, the last um, section, the la- I divided the book into four sections. And the fourth section deals with uh, anti-politics in practice, which a lot of that is exactly what we're talking about. Gandhi, and I, it really goes into how how he was able to accomplish what he did, how Martin Luther King used um, civil disobedience. Again, I told the story of like Rosenstrasse and all sorts of different stuff like that. So definitely pick it up. Um, it really, it's it's not just about civil disobedience. It's about all sorts of non-political strategies to use for uh, liberty and freedom. And my hope is that I can sort of show how Konkin's version of counter-economics sort of is the culmination of all of these different strategies, right? It's sort of just like, it's sort of like the most advanced theory in the social sciences is, is sort of my point here. Yeah, Konkin was all about it. I want to shout out Bolden one more time and remind him of the importance of the uh, no bussers and the no busser theory. What's it's, that, John? It's an inside yeah. joke. Uh, we okay. So yeah. uh, Bolden put on these uh, Nullify Now conferences along with this nonprofit that I helped to start and our buddy Jason Ring. Tom Woods was a big part of it. And so oftentimes, uh, some of the attendees, there, you know, there was a lot of conservatives, right? And so they would come up and Bolden would get up and just, uh, <laughs> there he is, best inside joke ever. And Bolden always tries to appeal to the conservatives and kind of throw in some left leaning stuff like the civil rights movement, right? And so he's talking about the virtue of Rosa Parks and the, and the civil disobedience that she did. And someone comes up to him afterwards and they're like, you know, you know, that never happened, right? There was no, there was no Rosa Parks. The whole Martin Luther King thing is part of a communist conspiracy. So we kind of tied that in with no planers, you know, in 9-11 Truth, there's people that think that the planes were holograms and no planers. So that's how we birthed the no buster theory. No, man, there was no, there was no Rosa Parks. There was no bus. It was all just made up. It's the no busser. I just had to, uh, well, I just isn't had to throw that, that out there. Isn't that another wonderful example of civil disobedience is Rosa Parks? Like, yeah. What a, just yeah. what a great example, right? Just saying no. They tried to say that about um, Gandhi too, you know, John. I mean, it's so funny. Like people are like, well, Gandhi and Malcolm X, you know, they were all paid to participate and and do these things, and they were paid to to do all whatever. And I'm like, really? I don't- 
<laughs> Gandhi gets a lot of hate. Gandhi gets a lot of hate, especially in like modern day India, because there is a lot of there's a strong nationalist sentiment with Modi and stuff like that in India. And Gandhi Modi was not about crazy. that. Gandhi was all about like making peace with like Pakistan and, and you know unity and stuff like that. So a lot of the the nationalists in India, the, the tide has sort of turned against Gandhi. Unfortunately, Modi is because, with the technocracy. That's why, Sal. Yeah. Yeah, for That's sure. Why. He is. He is. He's, He's totally like a populist, Trump, yeah, technocratic, George Bush kind of guy. It's bad news. It's bad news. Yeah. He's crazy. And now he's throwing this woman doctor under the bus um, with the who or or she's or she did it. I don't really know. I mean, maybe I she's also the guilty. sad thing is and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't wasn't his opponent like a real communist, though? So maybe we're better off with Modi than his opponent. OK, so India and China, you know, I mean, I can say this because our parents were born slaves to the, you know, to the. British India Company, because my mother was born in the blackout in 47 during the time when, you know, they were being becoming free from the Brits. Right. 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 So if they were just becoming free from the Brits. What does that mean? She's the baby of 10. That means all her brothers and sisters were born slaves. Right. And so so were, you know, my in-laws. I mean, all of our parents were born slaves. So. Their training is solid, man. I mean, you talk about like what's going on right now in the world. The reason they're so good at complying, the reason, you know, people think that Chinese and Indian or Indians are very great in school and whatever. Yeah, because they're trained to comply. They're just extra compliant. You know, they're going to, they're going to do it. Really yeah. I mean, more. they're, they're super duper compliant. Yeah. And so, you know, when you have those kind of numbers on your side with this bogus nonsense that's going on right now with the technocracy, look at who they got, man. They have, they, they started with the largest populations in the world and they have them in their pocket coming into this. So, you know, that's pretty crazy, right? Like think about that and the numbers they have with them. We have a lot of land. But they had all the people. <laughs> so, right, right, yeah. true. A lot of money. The Chai Com yeah, and Chinese I, communists are not messing around. They are no. threat in so many different ways. And it's just, I don't know, you know, nationalism, at least there's these factions, and it's not a centralized authoritarian state yet. So there's that little push and pull, just like with the local and state governments and the federal government. But the freaking Chai Coms and their influence, and I think I, they obviously had a whole lot to do with this COVID conspiracy, but... Speaking of people that don't like the Chai Coms, we got Xavier Hawk that's joining us. A little late to the game, but better late than never. Hey. Hawk, you there? Can All you right. Hear there he is. Yes, I hear him. Kind of. Uh-oh. Is that, is that Robot Hawk? That's Robo Hawk. <laughs> Robo Hawk. I think you, yeah, might, had... you might have a bad connection, brother. If you're on your phone, you might need a better service there. Okay. Well, I what I've been able to do before we I enjoy hearing his voice right. at least we got Haka, I don't know if you're on the road I think you messaged earlier you can message us in the private chat but we need better uh, cell phone reception because it's just coming in and out you know there there is something to the whole communist element with with like MLK and some of the civil rights stuff especially with the Black Panther Party right so I love the Black Panther Party and their tactics. Uh, we had Bobby Seale, who's one of the co-founders, speak at this conference that we did. It was super cool. And just their whole story 
it's agorist in many ways too. And they were exiting and building and they were doing healthcare and education and they were arming themselves, right? But they were, a lot of them were Marxists, you know, and part of their goal was to undermine capitalism and the American government and to, to overthrow all that and replace it with socialism. That's there, right? But at the same time, if it, if it was something where it's like they just have their black communities and their crews and towards the end, they actually started uniting beyond the black community. It wasn't just a black power kind of thing. It was like the Chicanos and the Brown Berets and uh, Puerto Ricans. They all got together before they were murdered by the FBI, of course. But if people want to like opt out of the system, do their thing through civil disobedience and building alternatives and then go do socialism over there. By all means, you know, we can do our little entrepreneurial agorist thing over here as long as it's not just forced upon people. But I just wanted to throw that out there because there was there is an element of truth to the whole communist Marxist influence. And then it's it's always just like gaming. So you had the Russians and the Soviet Union. You had the communists, the Communist Party, which is an international conspiracy, just like the Anglo-American establishment is. But you had them aiming and they're like, OK, we have some we, we see some civil disobedience. We see some opportunity for revolution. So let's go inject capital and inject resources and influence and ideas so we can help to undermine our political enemies. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Martin Luther King was um, well, a well-known communist, unfortunately. Uh, I don't know about, you know, um, uh, Malcolm X or the Black Panthers or whatnot, but. Um, you know, nobody was perfect. Nobody's perfect. A lot of these people, especially like the early libertarians, anarchist thinkers, like the, those who existed in the pre-Rothbardian era didn't get the economics right. And I don't, I'm not sure we should hold all that against them. Um, you know, if it wasn't for reading Mises and Rothbard, I would probably be an economic illiterate as well. So. Yeah, I remember in college, obviously all the professors were totally leftists and I, they had me drinking the Kool-Aid. One of my professors was so excited because I was like, why do these people have so much wealth? They should just share it with everyone. And the, I remember the professor being like, exactly. <laughs> and then, oh, yeah, never. fast forward. Just a few years. Oh I think a few years off. Take another, take another drink of the fluoride water. There you go. <laughs> All right, let, let's, try, let's try Hawk one more time. Hawk, are you with us? Hawk, come in. Xavier Hawk. I just figured out I can see these comments and yes. people are calling. Oh, oh there, he there he is. How you yeah. doing, brother? We'll grab a beer. Be right back. Dude, what I've been able to, to hear, I think, civil disobedience. All right, we got to we got to boot you again. It's in and out, in, in and, and out. out, in and out. Can't hear him. I don't know if it's Dreamyard or what the deal is, but. So, uh, Niti, tell us more about how your co-op works. I know we've covered it before, but it is a great example of exit and build and civil disobedience. So what yeah, so, uh, people come to your home and it's a private membership and you're able to sell food without permits and stuff. It's actually it was in my home. We're in commercial space um, and we started in my garage. And of course, people don't like that currently when since the mob has been activated. So when the mob was activated, now they didn't like people coming up my driveway who didn't look like me. And they reported us to the city and said, you know, like we have all these people walking up and down. So just fast forward now, I moved twice 
our membership basically, I told my membership, I said, listen, you know, I'm, I, I can go up against the USDA and the NCDA and the FDA, but I'm not going to go up against the mob. So, <laughs> uh, we're going to need to move. And so my membership has funded, um, a, a, a proper church for us. So we have a space where we are able to operate. And so the way it works is, um, everybody in the membership pays a membership fee. And they also um, then can come in and shop, um, you know, a la carte out of our fridges and freezers, or they can have a subscription or they can buy bulk, which is the subscription boxes. But it's just a one time versus, you know, um, getting it every week or every month. And we're consuming full nose to tail, but you don't have to buy an entire steer. So um, I have everything portioned off into, you know, like 15, 20 pound increments or as far as like chickens and things go, it's, you know, two birds per subscription. Uh, so it's a lot more reasonable for people to be able to do that. We've got um, several, um, what do you call it? Freedom cell members that are CSA members. Um, I encourage our membership to form their own freedom cells because, you know, we have enough people in the CSA where we could have several freedom cells. And so we're having a good time with that. But yeah, everybody comes every week. They um, have access to their stuff. Um, we're open four days a week, mainly because we also have day trip seafood that's coming in because we're over here um, in North Carolina. So we have access to the shore. I've got fishmongers that are cut, cutting fresh, fresh uh, fish for us. Um, every week. And so we're every week we're chasing fish and raw milk and raw dairy stuff. So we need time to be able to culture and prepare a lot of the dairy items. And so that's why I don't have a lot of food ready for people to pick up until Wednesday. So we're open Wednesday to Saturday as a side effect of chasing seafood and chasing, chasing milk. But um, meat is the big deal. And the way it works is my commitment to the membership is they will never not have food or never not have meat. I'm kind of prepping on a large scale for the whole membership. And we do that based on the subscriptions. So we're, we're making our projections on our food production based on subscriptions. And, um, we always over, shoot that a little bit, which is the reason we have room for a la carte and for bulk. And 12 years I've been doing this. So it seems to be working. Cool. Yeah, it's a great example of agorism and entrepreneurship in action. Super cool. Thanks for sharing that with us. Anybody else could do that in their area. And we know there's supply chain disruptions. People ought to be doing that. We just started a little food co-op where we're all chipping in to get a full cow butcher and all that stuff. So that's another low-hanging fruit that isn't risky at all and allows you to opt out of the grocery store and the supply chain matrix. Sal, somebody asked, uh, Joey Seal asked, Sal, how can someone get your book without supporting Jeff Bezos? Yeah, because I wanted to do that too, Sal. Yeah, yeah. So if you DM me um, on Twitter or on Telegram or whatever, um, I do have, I get like batches of them. And they, they go pretty quick. I get like 20 or 25 of them at a time. So just shoot me in a DM and I'll make sure you get one. You don't have your own store on the side or what? 
No, no we need a like, button, Sal. It's like this exclusive deal that you have to give yeah. Bezos and stuff like that. So it's actually agorism to sell these. We're actually disintermediating the property rights of Jeff Bezos. <laughs> but I've actually, if you look on page one, I actually renounced all copyrights. So really the only crime is that I lied to him and told him that I didn't. So. Oh, it's anti-copyright? Yeah, yeah, I renounced all copyright. There's no rights reserved. <laughs> there yeah. you go. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. I know one of those cool. guys has a, what's it, uh, oh, I forget the guy's name. Him and this other dude would do a show together, and he has this whole anti-copyright thing. Maybe, I don't know. Explain, explain, explain this to me, Sal. Sal, explain it to me. Copyright is violence. Sure, yeah, copyright, and so are patents, all forms of intellectual property. You can't own an idea, right? Because, you know, information is, is not scarce. You can only apply property rights to something that's scarce. Um, really, the go-to book on this is by Stephen Kinsella called Against IP. I had him on the show a while back. I had him on the Agora when Craig Wright was making all those uh, copyright claims on the white paper. And uh, he really breaks it down beautifully. But, yeah, in other words... The long and short of it is simply this. To enforce patent or copyright laws, you need the government to initiate violence on otherwise peaceful people, which, of course, violates the non-aggression principle. So, yeah. It all goes back to not being able to own an idea. It's it, it, like for it to be theft to rip off someone's book or to copy Sal's book or someone's software, you would have to take something away from someone, right? But if something's replicatable or reproducible – then it can't be taken away. And back to cryptocurrency, that's one of the great innovations that's not very talked about with Satoshi Nakamoto's Bitcoin is that it created for the first time digital scarcity, a digital asset or a digital item that can't be replicated, right? Because it's all spread out in the blockchain and then the blockchain gets hashed and you can't change the history of who has what, which is pretty cool. Bipcot, no government license is what I was thinking about. It's the BIPCOT no-gov license allows any use of software media products or services except by governments. The BIPCOT no-gov license threatens no government guns for violators. It is not copyright-based. It is entirely shamed-based. So I guess if someone goes and rips off your book and you have a BIPCOT, BIPCOT license, then the community will just be like, hey, man, you stole that idea from me or whatever. There's no no violence. Hey, Aniti Sundog says, uh, where do we find you? You got a Twitter or website you want to share with the folks? Yeah, so uh, the website is uh, www.farmtoforkmeatriot.org. So it's F-A-R-M-T-O-F-O-R-K-M-E-A-T-R-I-O-T dot O-R-G. And I am in Raleigh, North Carolina. And um, if you are... You know, interested in securing food in this way, let me know because I will help you. There you go. Sundog says, so patenting an idea is anti-freedom. You know, it, it, or what about trademarking then, Sal? Yeah, trademarking yeah. And copyright too. Well, no, with any, any form of intellectual property is anytime you initiate violence on an otherwise peaceful person is what, is what I think we should oppose. And in any of those instances, you, you have to do that. So. Oftentimes, like, it, that's where it all comes back to community, right? And, like, we, we build, we trade amongst ourselves. We There's so many of us, even just in the Freedom Zone Network. But the voluntarist community, the agorist community, the uh, liberty movement that arose out of the Ron Paul campaign in 2008, 2012. 
there's so many of us, we can start building and trading amongst ourselves. And then if somebody does something shady or somebody like rips off someone's research and development and starts selling it as their own, the best tool for that is is persuasion and communication. And hey, this person put their name up on the wall. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's better than guns and, you know, and cages. There are other ways, too, that Agoras can use um, some of these property rights, quote-unquote, laws to our benefit. So, um, for example, let's say, uh, you know, I think Google did this a while back. And, of course, everything, I'm, I'm, everything I know about property rights comes from Stefan Kinsella, so I'm really just paraphrasing his ideas here. But... Um, Really, you know, what you could do is you could say, look, we're not going, we're going to reject all property rights. We want to be open source. We want to give this information to the public in a free and open manner. And that's what a lot of tech companies did or claim to do, like Google and stuff like that. It's really good for branding and marketing. It makes you look like, like, uh, it's a good way to show your commitment to openness and transparency. Um, but I think, you know, other than that, I don't think there's any uh, defensive use of copyright or, um, you know, patents. I think a lot of people struggle with that. Like someone saying thieves are not peaceful and, and just the whole steal an idea. And oftentimes you just have to be so confident in your unique ability, your unique selling proposition or just your uniqueness to where if someone does take an idea like I do a lot of stuff and there's ideas that I have and there's products that I have. And if people like try to rip it off, it's like, they're still not going to do it as good as I can. Right. Or it's not right. the product plus our unique ability. But even if they can, John, e- even if they do it better than you, then that's great. That, that That's, that's excellent. That's, that's a good thing for the It'll market that people. we have a much more, we have a more efficient allocation of resources. So by, by using the state to sort of distort that, to sort that, that equilibrium, to sort that evenly rotating economy, we create sort of malinvestment and stuff like that and all sorts of unnecessary economic uh, consequences. The damn state. All right, we got about five minutes left. So maybe in this last bit of time, we can uh, share. Can I, can I use the, can, can I just jump in real quick before we do that? Um, yeah. So I'm trying to go back in the comments here. Somebody said a while back, all right, here it is. Fubair says, y'all push this, y'all push the civil disobedience, but it is all contingent, contingent on a friendly press. And I think that's wrong. I, I don't, I don't really agree with that because, yeah, there you go. Um, Gandhi didn't have a friendly press, right? But, but the British mm-hmm. aren't in India. Ross didn't have <laughs> no. a, a friendly press, but I can still go on the dark market and purchase things in an unregulated manner. So it doesn't really depend on that. Again, the strength of it comes down to showing the masses what the state is really about, showing them their true character and exposing that to the, to the public. And I think that's, that's the key. It doesn't matter if CNN is in on it because we, we all know that they are. Just like the New York Times was covering for Churchill back in, you know, during the days of the Indian Raj and stuff like that. I mean, I know that right now our media is like extra super corrupt and journalism has has been gone for a long time, Um, you know, because they basically just murdered all the journalists or they've got them tied up somewhere or something. I don't know what's going on. But back then there was less. um, There wasn't even, you know, like right now we like right right now today we we still have um, social media. 
you know, all over the place and, and the internet. Back then they didn't have anything like that. And, even, and no even one that. knew what was going on. Like, sorry. I was just saying nobody in the no, US. I didn't interrupt you. Nobody, nobody anywhere else in the world knew what was going on, you know, at that time. And, and even right now, a lot of the stories that people tell, you know, versus what we've been told when we're in India is, is not exactly lining up. So he was definitely not supported or promoted or um, given uh, good press. I'm sure he didn't get any press at the time. He was just sitting in jail feeling like a loser. Uh, also, they didn't have television like this. I mean, they didn't have television. Even, you know, in India, when I was a kid and I would go there in the 70s, then they only had three channels when we had cable coming out over here. So they were always 10 years behind um, in terms of, you know, network television or whatever, even at that time when I was a kid. So before that, when Gandhi was doing what he was doing, when he was actually there, I don't even know that they had, did they even have television in India? Because, I mean, I'm not kidding. I know that we had television here before they did there. And when I was a kid and we had a bunch of, you know, television networks here, they had two channels still. And then when we had cable here, like in the 80s, I went there in the 80s. And they still only had three channels. They did not have cable television at the time. Yeah. The sad thing is even social media is controlled and censored now, like the mainstream press and the mainstream uh, channels. However, whenever there's something huge, like all these protests that are breaking out all across the world against the lockdowns and mandates, they, they try to censor those on, on Facebook, for example. But so many people are sharing them for so many different sources. And there's so many people going live on these different platforms that it still finds a way to puncture and, and push through. So when idea, when I, when an idea or when pushing back on an idea is so popular that there's a huge critical mass of people doing it, there's no way to cover it up these days. It's pretty beautiful. And, and, you know, not only, not only is civilly, is civil disobedience sort of immune from being dependent on the press, but agorism, will even solve the problem of having a malevolent and corrupted press. You know, we're taught, we look at, look at what we're doing to these centralized legacy social media tech companies. Look what um, decentralized blockchain companies like minds.com are doing. Look how they're decentralizing a lot of this stuff. So, you know, there's other examples too. Um, I'll probably leave out, you know, everybody's favorite social media platform that's, that's on the blockchain. But my point here is that we're, we're resolving all of this through agorism and tokenization and decentralization. So even that, even though we're not dependent on the press, we still are addressing that problem. Again, none of these things are being addressed. You won't find any of this stuff being addressed in your local chapter of the Libertarian Party or whatever political party you, 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 you're, you're, concern yourself with, they're not going to fix any of that stuff. Whereas here in, in, in agorism, we have, you know, whatever you, whatever you're interested in, whatever your specialty is, you can work on that problem. And we have people working on those things and, and creating real life solutions today that all of us can use to be more free rather than wait for permission from lunatic, corrupt politicians. Hell yeah. Well, I think that's a good, a good stopping point. We're right here at 530 on the dot. This has been the Unloose the Goose podcast, episode 51. 
If you like what you hear, you can head over to unloosethegoose.com. That's unloosethegoose.com. And not only can you subscribe to our podcast feed on a variety of different services, but you can also join us on our email newsletter. That way we can keep in touch with you if we ever get the boot on this channel or that. And I strongly encourage you to subscribe to our Odyssey channel. We are able to go live now on Odyssey, which is super exciting. So when we inevitably get the boot here on YouTube because we don't censor ourselves, and even when we do try to censor ourselves, we still let the magic V word, for example, sneak through, uh, you'll always be able to find us on Odyssey because it is uncensorable. All right. Good night, everybody. Hong Kong. Uh, uh, peace. Peace and freedom. Break the law. Yeah. Unloose the goose. We'll take no abuse. Your paradise.